0: Matthew chapter 6, beginning our reading in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. May he bless us with it by granting us understanding and shaping our lives man visiting Epcot Center in Orlando kind of mused aloud to his friend. Isn't it a shame that Walt Disney didn't get to see all of this? His friend, who was a quick thinker, responded very quickly saying, He did. That's why it's here. You see, Walt Disney had a dream for a conceptual utopian city of the future what he called the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, what we just call Epcot, because Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow takes way too long to say. But the reality of it is is that even though Walt Disney died before construction was completed, it is a reality because he did see it. In the text that we were looking at this morning, in the two petitions that we have in Matthew 6, uh, verse 10, Jesus is giving to the church and to all of his followers his vision. His vision for the future, his vision for not a magic kingdom, but a godly kingdom. Two petitions that are closely related, almost interchangeable, almost redundant because your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look at this, one of the things that we would be asking ourselves is, well, what would it mean? What would it mean for the fullness of the kingdom to come upon us? And when we consider all of Scripture or the simple way, if we were living in the fullness of the kingdom, well, then those who are living would do what God wanted, fully honoring Him, glorifying Him, and receiving all the benefit of the joy that God has called us to have and to find in Him. That's the vision that Jesus lays out and invites us to pray for when we look at these these petitions here in this particular verse but they're different. They're not redundant. Their closeness is important. It's a very common technique that's employed in the Bible when authors want to bring attention to something that is significant or very important. And the closeness of these two petitions to one another are a reminder to us and should grab us and and tell us, this is the vision that Jesus has, and there's a part of the vision that Jesus has that tells us that God is calling, he's forming, he's bringing to being a people that will live their lives in complete obedience to him and be completely in tune to his purposes for history. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to get across to us. There's his vision, but he's also calling us to pray this into reality because while it's a vision and we can commit our lives to it, it's beyond our capacity to be able to bring to fruition, not only in the world, but even fully in our own lives. So God is inviting us as Jesus is speaking, to live into and to pray into and be beneficiaries of the vision that Jesus has given to us. And even while these clauses are very similar, and some of the topics that we'll look at this morning uh, would seem to relate uh, together, nevertheless, they are distinct. In fact, both of them are quite pregnant. And from them, we have a lot of questions. When we consider them and we look at them and we ponder them as if they are works of art, We start asking questions. We see questions that most of us or most of the world have as they're related to these particular petitions. We'll be exploring those questions when we look this morning. There's a number of different ways that we could have sliced this up and presented it this morning, but I figured the simplest way was just stick with what the text says and go with the two petitions. You know, it's kind of tough to improve on, you know, master work. Just as actors probably shouldn't try to improve on Shakespeare's lyrics, today I'm not going to try to improve on Jesus' vision. We'll just go ahead and take it as it is. And so we begin with what Jesus said in this passage. Your kingdom come. It's quite a lofty statement here. So we're compelled to be asking, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what is the kingdom anyway? The idea of a kingdom is somewhat foreign for most of us. I suppose if the Browns were still in this country, instead of having gone back to England, they could help us explain this. But for most of us who grew up in this country, we have ideas of what the kingdom is, but we live in a democratic republic. Kings, that's a concept for fairy tales and for our Bible studies. We have an idea of the definition, but it's not something that really resonates with us because in a king, there is a sovereign who has absolute authority to rule in any way that he sees fit over a particular geographic realm. That's his kingdom. And as king, he has the right to reign over it. Now, because kingdoms on this earth are mere reflections of the true kingdom that God has, and God has told us in Psalm 2, He's already established His kingdom and He's put His king on His holy hill. The kingdoms of this earth tend to be in warring fractions every once in a while. Somebody doesn't like the king, they don't have the opportunity to have an election. They just have an insurrection. And so they outdo them. But our king can't be dethroned. No matter how often people may be trying to remove him from the authority, his kingdom has already been established. And Jesus is our king. kingdom itself, in Jesus' case, is probably most, uh, is best described as this. It is the reign of Christ in the hearts and the lives of his people everywhere. And the reason that's it's important for us to understand it, and even that last word in everywhere, is that Jesus' kingdom is not a geographical kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom. Perhaps a better way of, of remembering it is to think of it this way, is that Jesus' kingdom is not a location, but a relation. In other words, Jesus exercises his, his control, his authority, his dominion, rightfully so, because all of the earth belongs to the Lord, and the Lord has placed him as the king overall. But rather than coming in in a military way and wiping out all of the warring factions, all of the rival parties, Jesus is calling a people to himself. And by the grace of his Holy Spirit, he is at work within the hearts of people, awakening them to, preparing them for, when the seed of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, granting them the gift of faith, that they might believe what Jesus has done on our behalf, that all who believe, therefore, have become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of which Christ is the king. It's about a relationship. Christ exercises his reign by love, giving of his life, and grace that enables us to believe and receive the benefits. And then by guiding us and directing us from his word, the authority that he exercises begins to take shape. He calls the people who are in relationship to him that he's reigning over in their hearts and their lives. Both components are essential for us to consider because Jesus is not simply calling us to obey what he uh, is telling us to do, but to delight in the commands to which he calls us. We can go through the motions and obey fully, but in so doing, if our hearts are not taking delight in the love that God has given to us and showing us the way we're to live, we're still failing, failing to live up, failing to obey, in the fullness of what the commands mean, and so we need to realize that Jesus is telling us here that we're to pray for the kingdom of God, His reign to come on earth, and even as we say, said, uh, as, uh, we read, uh, even as it is in heaven. And we need to ask this question as well. Even if we understand what a kingdom is, why do we need to be praying this? Well, I probably don't need to tell you. It's because we live in a broken world. Turn on the news and reminded that this world is not the way it is supposed to be. We see constantly images of violence, poverty, and injustice that permeate every culture in the entire world. It's not the way things are supposed to be. In fact, it's not even the way things have always been. There was a time when God created the earth when all things were perfect, and those he created all of creation was living in harmony not only with one another but more importantly with their creator and yet the very first people our first parents messed the whole thing up for all of us and we are not only experiencing the consequences of their error their sin but we are repeating it in our own lives so that while they may be the first they weren't the last in any consequences and difficulties we reap, not only because of them, but because of ourselves as well. But God, having seen that, didn't leave the world to decay, but made a promise to the very ones who had rebelled against them, and to all who would come after them, that he had a plan. He had a plan of redemption, that he was going to call the people back to himself. He was going to establish his kingdom. That plan of redemption was fulfilled in the person of Christ and is ongoing now as he's calling people from every tribe, every nation in the world to himself. God's promise was not only to redeem a people, but there would ultimately be a restoration. And so that one day, earth would be as it was at the beginning. Earth would be as it is in heaven. And Jesus is calling for us to be praying for this. He's calling for us to pray for the kingdom of God to come and bear fruit and to be known throughout the entirety of the earth, to make things the way they were supposed to be, to make things the way that they originally were. interesting is that Jesus has come and offered the redemption. Also, when he came, declared something that has perplexed people for quite some time. And it is, in one sense, confusing, at least experientially, Because while we look at the news and we see that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be, and Jesus is saying, pray that God would bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, meaning that there's something that is not reality right now that needs to be coming. Jesus, when he came, also said, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he meant by that, by his very presence, the kingdom of God had already been inaugurated. The king was present, and the king had begun his reign. Even if the world and most of its people didn't recognize that the kingdom of God was already present. And so we see in the scriptures something that causes people confusion because at the very same time, the Scriptures tell us that the kingdom of God is a present reality and it's also a future hope. Now, theologians have a, a word for this. It's the now but not yet. Sounds kind of Russian, but if you break it down and say it real slowly, you can understand, like a lot of words, what it means. Now but not yet means now but not yet. Okay, I made the whole thing up. I just didn't want you to feel jib this morning without walking away with a $20 word. You know, four, three-letter words, you know, now, but, not yet. That's kind of dull. But, you know, you get that big 12-letter word, and you feel like you know something. But the reality is theologians remind us that there are two th- dynamics that are going on at the very same time. And it's important for us to understand those dynamics because it helps us to be able to understand our experience in this world particularly those who are followers of Christ, who have committed their lives, who know others, who are desiring, and who are actively praying this prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, your kingdom come. And it is happening. And it is expanding. And people from around the world are coming to Christ in tremendous, tremendous numbers, even in places where it is not being reported. Within the next few years, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world. Record numbers of Muslims are turning to Jesus Christ, recognizing the emptiness and the ugliness of their own culture, propelled by their own faith. While we see a, a lessened influence in our own culture, Christianity is exploding throughout the world because the prayers, your kingdom come, is being expressed. And nevertheless, until Jesus comes back fully, even as he's promised, we'll never see the fullness of the kingdom come. And so we live this life praying that the kingdom would come and at the same time experiencing the reality of its presence. And when we do that, When we pray, both for the future coming, the future coming of his kingdom, and realize that it's here now, and that we get a taste of it now, it helps us to understand the difference between our experience and what we see. Let me illustrate it in this way. What we are experiencing spiritually is somewhat like what I've experienced at times when I go shopping at Costco. It seems like sometimes on every aisle there is a taste of something. They're offering you an opportunity to sample something. Maybe Virginia ham with some sort of mustard on on one aisle, crab cakes on another. I, I have no idea. But when you go, you're getting a taste of everything. And their purpose in giving you the taste is so that you'll understand what it tastes like and then hopefully get you addicted to it, buy it in great multitudes, and then they get rich, and then you go home happy and get fat. Um, that's their plan. It works. Um, the reality of the kingdom is somewhat like that. We get a taste of it here, and to know that we're longing for. But just as none of those tastes that you have at Costco is a meal, we don't experience the fullness of it in this life. And therefore, it's necessary for us to both experience the reality, to taste it, and to pray for the promise of its fulfillment to come. We need to realize that the key to our happiness is found in the kingdom coming. In the kingdom experienced. Jesus also said, following that up, kind of filling it out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which in one sense is simply the explanation of what it will look like when the kingdom comes. But in another sense, it, it's a reminder of the need that we have now and gives us the model, the standard, by which we are to measure and for which we are to seek. But it does seem to beg a, a question. We're praying for earth, our lives, to be like they are in heaven. But what is heaven like? I'm sure there's a smart aleck somewhere in the audience saying in their mind, it's heavenly. I'm assuming it's Tim Cleary, but that's a whole, yeah. Um, but, uh, And that's true. But we probably need to go a little further. What is heaven like? Because there's all sorts of misconceptions. In fact, I think a lot of the ideas that uh, even many believers have about heaven are shaped more by things that we see in our culture than uh, by the scriptures themselves. I mean, is heaven filled with baseball fields out in cornfields in Iowa? I mean, apparently that's a one possibility that Hollywood has proposed to us. We're coming out of the holiday seasons. Is it true that in heaven, that every time a bell rings, an angel's getting his wings? I mean, there's an awful lot of bells. Most of us have this idea, even though some of us recognize it's not true, but we still have this concept, and it comes up a lot of times at funerals is when somebody that is beloved, particularly somebody who's beloved and who is also good, is going to heaven. We say, well, heaven just got another angel. And while all of those are wonderfully sentimental ideas, none of them are found, uh, have any validity within the scriptures themselves. And I suspect one of the reasons we may resonate with those ideas is because what most of us know about heaven in the scriptures isn't really all that exciting. I love what Randy Alcorn in his uh, really tremendous book simply titled Heaven, and I, I highly recommend it for everyone, because I don't think it's just preparing us for heaven, but it's a wonderful life-changing uh, perspective even for us now. But i love the fact that this guy who has written um so wonderfully on heaven he confesses at the very beginning is that his natural conceptions that most people seem to share that he shares with many other people his ideas of heaven that heaven is just about sitting around on clouds floating around and never-ending choir rehearsals he says that my idea of heaven sometimes almost seems hellish i mean who wants to do that i mean it'd probably be nice and kind of interesting to float on a cloud for a little while but i mean how long do you even want to ride a roller coaster at bush gardens Eventually, you want to get off and do something else. So what's heaven like? Scripture doesn't give us a great deal of detail, but there are some specifics that we are given. We're given some physical impressions. We're told that there are many mansions. It captures our attention. I don't know if you are like me, but sometimes it's, it's enjoyable to drive around in, in some stately neighborhoods or to go visit, whether it's some of the plantations or when down in Asheville area, go to the Biltmore, and then to imagine that there are many of those kinds of things and just admire the architecture and the opulence that, uh, that, that, uh, that somebody has, has crafted. and Realize God says in heaven there are many mansions. He says that there are streets of gold. Now, whether that's to be taken literal or not, I mean, certainly the figurative aspect of that is important for us to realize that heaven is so glorious that that which we die for, we kill for, is something that we pave our streets with and walk and drive on. In other words, heaven is of no more, in heaven, that gold is of no more value than, than tar because everything else is so perfect. Or maybe things actually are. The straits actually are literally paved with gold. I'm not going to probably hang, uh, I'm not gonna hang my reputation one way or the other on that. But I do believe that God is telling us something, whether it is a physical reality or whether it is a concept to help us to gain an appreciation of just how beautiful, how spectacular heaven is. We are given some physical impressions of what the place is going to be like. We're also given some ethical impressions. First of all, we need to recognize that heaven is the place where God's glory shines so brightly that people are both drawn to it and repelled from it at the same time. It's kind of like looking at the sun or an eclipse. You can't help but look, but, you know, not a good idea. God's glory just radiates, and we are no longer seeing dimly. And we are drawn to him, and at the same time, recognizing, seeing it so brightly, we realize how holy God is. In heaven, God's name is perfectly hallowed. But in heaven, it's also a place where people are so captivated with God that they willingly and delightingly obey his commands with a heartfelt obedience. No begrudging, like, okay, if that's what I need to do, I'll do it. But it's an amazement, a delight, and a recognition that in our obedience we are able to give delight to God. We have that understanding. And I think the reality is that Jesus has in mind here more the ethical understanding of coming to earth, uh, that heaven, the kingdom of God coming to earth, that on earth as it is in heaven. I don't want to minimize the physical because the beauty of architecture and creation, all that is very, very important, and, I, and, and that's a subject for another day. But to have that stuff and to not have the ethical implications that we see throughout all of the scriptures wouldn't make it very heavenly. But Jesus has in mind that we are praying for the kingdom to come, that on this earth, God's will would be done. Obedience. Delighting in obedience course, that begs another question, doesn't it? It certainly is a question that a lot of people wrestle with. How do I know what God's will is? How do I determine God's will? I mean, there's an awful lot of evil that has taken place in this world because people have said, God told me to do this. And the consequences of their actions certainly didn't give people an idea that hey, heaven might be at hand. It felt like hell and made them wish for heaven, but it it didn't feel like God must be at work because people deluded in their whole mindset. And so conscientious people have to ask the question, how do I do this? And most of us have probably had friends or heard of people or turned on the TV where people are telling you that they are receiving specific uh, words of speaking from God, hearing God, verbally, seeing Him physically. I don't want to say that that's impossible because we do see examples of that found in Scripture, but one of the things we need to realize is that in the Scripture, we see about a handful of those things taking place over the course of several thousand years. And that's not unimportant. It reminds us that God will do what God is going to do. God will speak in the way that God wants to speak. But if you're looking for a vision and a direct revelation to come from God, it doesn't happen every day. It's not going to happen with every incident in your life because it has happened so far as God has revealed to us, a handful of times over several thousand years. It's not likely that that's the way that God's going to communicate with you, which is beneficial when somebody comes and starts the conversation, and God told me to say this to you, or God told me to do this. It's a fair bet that God didn't tell them anything. They're just itching to tell you something. But it doesn't help us with the question of, how do I know what God wants me to do, particularly in specific instances? I mean, we have a general idea of things that we ought to do and things that we ought not to do, but how do you make the decision? Who are you going to marry? How are you going to take this job? When is it time to retire? When is it time to unretire? Well, that one's probably a lot easier because your bank account gives you a good indication of that one. But, the, but these are all practical questions. The day-to-day questions that we deal with for people that want to give their lives to the Lord and want God to be guiding them and to live their life in doing God's will These are serious, important questions. And so we ask the question, how do we know what God's will is? I can't go into great detail and specifics today for two reasons. One is we don't have time, and two, I don't know. But I do know that God has given us some general instructions that will help many of us to resolve the question, and we can certainly explore this together later on. I think the first thing that we need to understand is that, by and large, that we see both in Scripture and have experienced in our own lives, that God's will that we understand happens one step at a time. Very rarely does God reveal to us exactly what's going to happen in five and ten years from now. We may have desires, we may have designs, and they may come to fruition. But basically, God says, here's a scenario. You know by my word what overall is important you know by my word how you are fitting into my work the advancement of my kingdom the glory of my name and we take the next step based on the circumstances that present them to us step by step we find ourselves going into god's will God does guide us and direct us by the circumstances and by his word and even by his spirit that brings passion within us desire and insight and clarification. But I do think it's also a mercy of God to not lay out everything before us because we can't live this life apart from God. And if God was to give me every step for the next 10 days, I would say thank you God, I'd go about the business doing what I'm attracted to do and After ten days, probably more like two weeks after four days of screwing up, I would then go back to the Lord. But by telling me and guiding me one step at a time, I am able to exercise my will, my intellect, and at the same time be constantly dependent upon God, which is what I was created to be in the first place. And so it's not punishment. It's not withholding anything that God is not giving us the picture of our lives well in advance. But what are the practical dynamics in that? How do we understand? I think Augustine summed it up very well in a way that we need to take to heart and actually ponder what it is that he said. Wrestling with the same question, even back in antiquity, Augustine said this very simple, very simple formula. His answer to how do we know uh, what, how to obey God? He said, "Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength, and then do as you please." Now we need to ponder that for just a moment because it sounds like a checklist at first. Okay, I love God. I loved. Okay, I did something for God. I thought about God, and but He's not saying just express something. Get through the formalities. What he's saying is a radical giving of yourself to the glory and to the purposes of God. To delight yourself in God, to love him with all of your mind, growing in your understanding of who God is. And so, therefore, you have an understanding of who God is, what his values are, and how he would, how he would function and what, what brings him to light. To love him with all of your heart is not just to grow theological knowledge, but to recognize how he has stepped into history and redeemed us and made us his children. And when we respond to the love that he's given us, we love him in return. And therefore, our decisions, what we desire to do, will be whatever it is that brings him pleasure and glory and honor. And then with our strength is we act in ways that will be consistent with what we know to be true of God and what will bring him desire what Augustine is saying is, give yourself fully to God in all dimensions of your life, and then you ask yourself a simple question. What do I want to do, having my mind? Is it a perfect guidance? It's not, but it is a biblical guidance. Because we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. What Paul was saying there, after that beautiful doxology and presentation of Christ, They're saying, you too, our attitudes ought to be just like Jesus. And now when we commit ourselves to that, and then we look back, we find that it's God who is working passions within us. Now, we need to be aware that our hearts are deceitful, and sometimes we make decisions that are not accurate to what God would want. We have our own selfish desires, but we live in grace and repentance. But we are far more free than what we tend to think. This is the biblical paradigm, and Jesus is saying that we would all live our lives. We are much closer to being in heaven if we all love the Lord our God with our hearts, our minds, and strength, and then did what our heart's desire was, having been shaped by that love for God and knowledge of who he is. We act on that. Just imagine the fullness, even in our own church, if we would commit ourselves to that. How much more if that was expanding in our culture, and throughout the world. Jesus isn't calling us just to discern what God's will is. He's calling us to do God's will. And it's a very pointed thing that we need to understand because so often we get caught up in the questions but fall short in the actions. Years ago, I heard a story. I don't remember whose it is, so I'm ripping it off and claiming full credit for it. But a businessman decided that he was going to go on a long journey. Or for our day, it could be decided he was running for president. But that's besides the point. So he left very specific instructions for his employees who had been with him for a number of years that they were to run the business in his absence. And he left on his journey with his employees that he trusted tremendously. And Even in his absence, he was not letting go entirely he would periodically write letters letting them know what was going on and kind of his thoughts his values and instructing them on how these values can be lived out and worked out in the workplace and trusting that they would be able to implement those things even in his absence they they'd been there with him they should be able to handle this Sometime later, he came back somewhat unexpectedly. They knew he was coming back, but they weren't sure exactly when. They weren't expecting him in a particular day. And he walks into his office place, and he finds the place different. Only a couple of people dutifully working at their desks. The place, while certainly not a pigsty, was was somewhat unkempt, not the way that it left. It clearly had not been the attention to detail and to keeping things up the way that they ought to be.
1: And he looked around
0: and was a bit frustrated. And so he started looking for his senior um, leaders to find out where they are. And he found them all in the back room, sitting back, drinking coffee, kind of chuckling, yeah, some work out on the desk. But nobody seemed to be doing a whole lot. And he walked in, and they were excited to see him. And he had mixed feelings. He was excited to see them, but he also was tremendously disappointed. He was confused as to what was going on here. And he said, what is going on? And they didn't understand what he meant. They said, what do you mean, what's going on? Well, are you, what's going on with the company I left you? And they were still somewhat perplexed. Have you been following the instructions that we have worked out together? More or less. Did you receive any of my letters? To which the most senior of the leaders of the business said, "Oh, absolutely, they were great. I mean, there was some tremendous stuff in those letters that you gave to us. In fact, some of us get together once a week and we we've committed ourselves to studying them. A few of the more committed people are even memorizing some of the better lines." And <laughs> exasperated, he said, "But what have you done with them? What do you mean do with them?" We studied them, we memorized them, we tell other people about them. What do we do? You know, at this point, you've probably figured out, or you're just not awake enough yet to realize this is the parable of the kingdom. It's exactly what Jesus has done. He has come and lived amongst us for a while, and we had the full body of the entirety of his word of the Old Testament. And he had even explained how he is visible in them and the implications for our lives. And even in his physical absence, by his inspiration of his spirit through his apostles and other servants, he has given us his letters to express his heart, his desire to guide us in the way that we are to live. And many of us who are in this denomination, in this church, in this tradition that are conservative and value that word, we have committed ourselves to studying, answering the questions, and even memorizing and proclaiming, and yet we find ourselves falling short in the obedience, and particularly the heartfelt obedience. Because one of the things that we need to understand if we're going to understand the fullness of the importance of this prayer is the reason that this prayer is so unnecessary is that on this earth and in this church and in this pulpit right now are people, a person, a person, who would much rather live this life according to my will and get God to get on my side than to commit myself to his will and doing what he has called myself. That's the brokenness and the sinfulness that we all share. And we need to realize that's our condition and then turn our attention to what is God said, conforming to it, repenting, believing, and realizing his love for us, which is the motivation for our obedience in the first place. Jesus says, pray for this to become the reality. If thy kingdom come he is the desire of our hearts, then it becomes incumbent upon us to bring everything in our life's mission under the reign of Christ. Sociologist Michael Goheen says that the purpose of the church, the purpose of Christians, is that we are to serve essentially as little movie trailers for the world. We're getting into the Academy Awards nomination time. And so we'll be seeing snippets of all sorts of movies that are begging somehow to get the awards. But whether you're a a movie aficionado or not, we've all seen the little movie trailers that come on TV. The purpose of the movie trailer is to give you enough of a snapshot of what is going to take place in the movie, what the movie's about, to give you the opportunity to determine whether or not this is something you think it's worth seeing something that you would enjoy. What Michael Goheen is telling us is that our purpose in this life is to live the lives, those who are called by the name of Christ, to live this life in such a way that the world around us that does not yet know the love of Christ can see through the way we live our lives, the way that we live our lives together, and the passions of our lives as to whether the coming kingdom of heaven is an attraction that they want to be part of. Jesus gives us this prayer as a commission. In other words, here is the priority of our lives. We want the kingdom to be coming back. It should be. When we realize it's not our priority, we have an opportunity to repent. But it's not just a prayer, but it is a calling. It's not just a calling, it is a prayer. But the two work together because we now, for, now live our lives focused to bringing honor to God, to hallowing his name by doing his will, heartfelt obedience, and realizing that the task that is God is calling us to is beyond us, we also pray that God would be at work. When We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We are praying for two things. That it is first done in us and that it is second spread through us to the nations. The people who are living without hope. But as God is at work through us, more and more come to Christ, we see the kingdom snapshot growing. I'm not going to go into the eschatological discussions as to whether or not we're going to usher the kingdom in or whether we will only serve as a snapshot. Camper will answer that question for you. But it really doesn't matter because God has called us to a glorious purpose, promised his grace, and to be with us. And reoriented our lives for his glory. We come to this table and we are reminded yet again that the kingdom is both a present reality and a future hope. This table is a taste of the kingdom to come, but a reminder of what has already been done. You see, Jesus said this Bread is my body, it's broken for you. In other words, it's a, it's a representation of what Jesus has come as the king and how he has secured a kingdom for himself, which is to lay his life down and take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. At the same time, we are told that it is a foretaste of a feast that is to come that is both real and metaphorical. In other words, it's a celebration when you will have what brings you the greatest delight. Because God, who loves you, is preparing and providing it. Jesus says to those who are his followers to come to this table and to come frequently, to eat and be reminded of all that it signifies. This morning we are reminded of what Jesus has done and what he's promised to do. We live within that tension. But as we taste what Christ has done, we hunger for what will come. But as we hunger what will come, we also see our hearts changed, our lives following This table is for all who believe in Jesus Christ and who are members of any Bible-believing church. Come to feed your faith. If you're not a believer in Christ or you're not a member of any church, we would ask that you not participate, not because we want to begrudge, but because we don't want you to profess what is not that you believe. There's no magic by simply going through the action. The benefits of this table come only through faith because the Scripture says that there are consequences coming to this table in a way that is unworthy. And chief among that is coming and not believing in what Christ has done and what Christ has promised. At the same time, we come as people that are prepared by confessing our sin. So he invites us now to take a moment where each of us goes before the Lord confessing our sin and our doubts, knowing we confess to one who loves us his invitation to us to do this is not for condemnation, but for restoration. So let's go quietly before the Lord now. Father, forgive us for our sins. Thank you for Christ in whom our sins are and have been forgiven. Kindle within us faith that leads to joy, that brings you delight, even as we eat and drink the elements of this table. We pray in Christ. Amen. I invite the elders to come up at this point this morning as they will serve you in in your seats the body and the blood of Christ. Actually, we're going to make a change here. This was the way we're supposed to do it, but we're not set up for that. So we're going to change it around, and the elders will still be here, but you're coming to them because the other, the gluten-free crackers are not are only in the in the front. So. Um, All right. Come to the table.
1: Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day. the black